Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willie's Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. My guest today is Michael Gray. Michael is a curator at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum and has been responsible for many of its world-class exhibits, including exhibits on the Ray Charles, Nashville's vast rhythm and blues history, and its most recent one, Dylan Cash and the Nashville Cats. Michael and I share a common love and fascination for all kinds of music and especially southern rhythm and blues and soul. Let me start off by quoting Nashville music journalist Craig Heavyhurst. Um, he said, The world knows Nashville because of people like Alan Jackson and Taylor Swift. Nashville knows itself because of people like Michael Gray. Today's guest, Michael Gray, is curator at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum here in Nashville. He's originally from Detroit and moved here when he was 18 years old, if I have my facts right. He soon started working at Phonolux Records on Nolensville Road, where he started to get emerged in the rich history of Nashville rhythm and blues. This led to him connecting with music entrepreneur and songwriter Ted Jarrett, who was one of the pivotal figures of Nashville R&B. This in turn led to him curating the exhibit Night Train to Nashville Music City Rhythm and Blues 1945-1970 at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. The exhibit's companion anthology record won the Grammy Award for Best Historic Compilation. He also curated exhibits on Ray Charles, the Bakersfield Sound, Sam Phillips, and the current exhibit Dylan Cash and the Nashville Cats. Please welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Michael Gray. Hey, thanks for having me, Andreas. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for, for taking your time uh, talking to me. Would you mind starting off describing a little bit what your work at the Country Music Hall of Fame entail? Yeah, so my title at the Country Music Hall of Fame is Museum Editor, but that's not very descriptive. <laughs> Mainly what I do is I curate exhibits and host public programs. You know, once we mount an exhibit, we do all kinds of panel discussions and concerts and Q&As and film screenings, you know, to, to flesh out the story that we tell in the exhibit. And so um, I have the privilege of, you know, helping put those together and in, in, in a lot of case hosting those events or moderating the, the panels, you know. So that's the majority of my job. You know, at the museum, there's so many things going on that I, you know, 
I have other duties as well, but but curating exhibits and working on the public programs takes most of my time. Okay, so uh, why don't we go kind of back to the beginning? How did you initially get the music bug? You know, I'm originally from Detroit, um, and my parents had great taste in music. You know, they came of age in the 50s, and so I was turned on to, you know, Chuck Berry and a, and a lot of Motown music. And um, and by the time, you know, I was getting into middle school and high school, I was really getting into rhythm and blues. So I was getting into, like, the superstars of the genre, you know, the Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin and Sam Cooke and Ray Charles and at a James and, you know, eventually found my way to Solomon Burke and, and all that. And just love that. Also was getting into jazz. Miles Davis's kind of blue record was the first jazz record I ever bought. And, you know, I would listen to a record like that and say, Oh, who's that on saxophone? Oh, it's John Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley. So then I'd go out and buy records by them. And then, you know, it would just keep going and going and yeah, going absolutely. to this day. And so, so I really got into rhythm and blues, soul music and jazz music. And, um, when I moved to Nashville in 1987, I started working at Phonolux Records, as you mentioned. And the, uh, the owner there is a, you know, a, a British guy named Mike Smith, who has just a phenomenal record collection and has just wonderful, great taste in music. And um, by the time I, I was 18 years old, and when I started working at the store, I was playing some records by Arthur Alexander, the great, you know, soul artist from from Muscle Shoals and Mike pointed out to me you know I was naive I didn't know and he said you know a lot of those a lot of Arthur Alexander's records were made in Nashville and I was brand new to town I was young I was you know just not very well yet educated on the city's music history and um, I was surprised you know um, I didn't know that Nashville had you know produced so much great R&B music and um, and so because I took an interest in Arthur Alexander recording in Nashville Mike you know took the initiative to like point out a lot of other great R&B records that were made here as well and I remember um, he would show me these 78 RPM records and these 45s and all well, not all of them but a lot of them said produced and written by Ted Jarrett and so Again, this is 1987. Um, I'm in college at MTSU, and I was taking um, a folklore class from the great Charles Wolfe. And one of our assignments was to do um, an oral history interview with somebody. And Mike Smith at Phonolix said, "You know, why don't you see if Ted Jarrett's around and, and do do your oral history interview with him? You know, for your class project." And so I remember very vividly being on the campus of MTSU in Murfreesboro and going to a payphone and going to the white pages, the telephone book, and finding Theodore Jarrett, you know, listed on Main Street in Nashville and just cold calling him and explaining who I was and that I would love to do an interview with them. And uh, it took him a minute to warm up to the idea. And But then he had me over at his office there in East Nashville. And boy, that was a life-changing event for me. I mean, Ted... I mean, we spent hours, hours talking, and he just opened up, you know, this whole new world to me of, of performers and songwriters and producers and studios and DJs and, you know, and every name he was mentioning, I was like saying, oh, man, I want to meet that person and interview that person. And, um, you know, at this point in my life, 
I didn't really know what I was going to do with it all. You know, like like I knew it had sort of become this lost history um, and I wanted to chronicle that history and let other people know about it. And but I didn't really know exactly what I would do with it. But I knew that like in my record collection, I was keeping all the Nashville R&B stuff to kind of in its own little section, you know, in, in, in my music room, kind of I was putting it all aside or anytime I ran across a magazine article or an obituary or any information that had to do with Nashville R&B, I was collecting all that and putting it in files and thinking one day I want to do something with this, but didn't know what, you know, and um, I was fortunate enough to, to get to hear some of Nashville's great R&B singers from the 50s and 60s. They were performing out. Um, Marion James, um, Nashville's queen of the blues, would um, have these musicians reunions every Labor Day weekend where you could go and hear Earl Gaines and Roscoe Shelton and, and, and folks like that. And so I was getting to hear these people live. And, um, and then um, I got a job at the Nashville Banner newspaper and this was in um, I started there in 1995 and any chance I could get I would write about the R&B artist whenever I could I did a newspaper story on Ted Jarrett I did um, I remember um, Hank Crawford the great jazz saxophonist who is from Memphis but attended Tennessee State University in Nashville and got discovered by Ray Charles here um, I did a story on him for the paper um, Hoss Allen passed away the great WLAC DJ Hoss Allen died and I wrote his obituary for the banner so I was any opportunity I I had to write about these these figures I, I, I would never ever dreaming that I would end up ultimately you know doing the night train to Nashville project at the country music hall of fame that was you know years years away from that and never saw that coming that was you know but when I got to the country music hall of fame um, we were in a meeting one day where we were just trying to decide, you know, what major exhibit should go in this 5,000 square foot gallery that we have. And we were throwing different ideas, um, you know, out, you know, several of us. And, um, and there was another person working at the Country Music Hall of Fame by the name of Daniel Cooper. And I cannot exaggerate how important Dan Cooper has been to my life this is a guy who's very very bright and smart he's also very quiet and humble um, and doesn't do a lot of um, um, public speaking or pub public engagement so sometimes he doesn't get the due he deserves because he's so quiet and behind the scenes but he had also been very interested in the history of Nashville R&B and had been like writing liner notes for CD reissues and interviewing a lot of the the artist and he was working at the country music hall of fame at the, the same time and we just kind of the two of us sort of um put together a proposal that we do the night train to nashville exhibit at the museum and it opened in uh 2004 and it was a 5,000 square foot exhibit we put out two volumes of cds uh we put out um uh three related books to the topic we did a host of uh public programs i'm thinking maybe 30 um whether they be you know concerts or panel discussions or q a's or tribute concerts um just just a load of those and um you know i mean one 
wonderful thing about the Country Music Hall of Fame is that you do have like all these platforms and outlets. You know, it's not just a book or just a concert or just an exhibit, but you get to tell the story in so many ways. Yeah, and I, I don't even know if there's anything comparable, certainly not here in town. I mean, I'm like, no matter what the exhibit is, it's just, it's just wonderful to see how much detail and how much work went into into curating it and and how visually appealing it is too that i i find always interesting too that whole side of and you do a great job to do that i mean the current one uh dylan cash and the nashville cats is a very good example of that as well and although i i missed the original night train exhibit i got a little taste of it i got ted Sheridan's book which i highly recommend and the booklet book you guys put together with a artifact from the history. And uh, you did some uh, reunion concerts. I think you had a five-year reunion at the museum one night. I came to that before I even moved here. And then the one a few years ago, too. And it was just great to, to still see some of those great artists. And, uh, well, maybe just a little bit to educate some of our listeners about some of the recordings that were made here and then were maybe the most well-known maybe you can just kind of mention a few yeah yes yeah. like Nashville R&B um, and a lot of big hits came out of here um, you know uh, Buzz Kaysen and Mac Gaydon wrote a song called Everlasting Love which was originally recorded by Robert Knight a singer from Franklin and then that song is you know lived on over the decades with you know versions by Carl Carlton and U2 and Gloria Estefan and on and on, you know, so that's one of the bigger R&B songs to ever, I mean, that's just got to be one of the biggest songs that ever come out of Nashville, period, you know, and then um, Bobby Hebb uh, wrote a song called Sunny um, that was all over the radio, you know, in the summer of 66, it was so big that he got to open up for the Beatles on their final tour of America, and then over 500 artists have recorded that song from Frank Sinatra and Count Basie to James Brown and Cher. It just goes, you know, everybody's just become a standard. That's, you know, um, one of the greatest um, singers to come out of uh, the Nashville R&B scene was a guy named Gene Allison. Um, And he had a song that was written and produced by Ted Jarrett called You Can Make It If You Try. And, um, you know, the Rolling Stones ended up covering that song on their first album. So, I mean, you know, there's also The Choking Kind by... Joe Simon, you know, which uh, won a Grammy for a Best R&B Song uh, that year yeah, in Harlan 69. Howard. Yeah, it was written by Harold. You know, in the Night Train exhibit, um, because, we're the, because we're the Country Music Hall of Fame, we felt like we should um, have one specific section of the exhibit that directly looked at the connections between R&B and country music in Nashville. And... That's a perfect example, The Choking Kind, written by Harlan Howard, this great country music songwriter, the dean of Nashville songwriters. Um, and it was originally recorded by Waylon Jennings, and then a couple of years later um, it was turned into an R&B hit by Joe Simon. So, you know, in the exhibit we had a place where you could hear a little bit of Waylon Jennings' version and hear Joe Simon's version, and you could listen to the, uh, you know, the similarities and differences. And we and we did a number of songs that way. Yeah, um, yeah. that's always been interesting to me too. And you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little later too. But Muscle Shoals had a little bit of 
that connection to Arthur Alexander had always a little bit of country in his. Another song I can think of is uh, Don't Take Her, She's All I Got, which Cherry Williams, Swamp Dog, and Gary U.S. Bonds wrote as an R&B song, but then Johnny Paycheck had a huge hit, and, and other people too. Yeah, and, it was originally recorded by uh, Freddie North, yep. and, um, and uh, Freddie is still living in Nashville. Um, he's a reverend now, and... Um, goes by his his real name carpenter reverend carpenter and um but yeah you're you're right he uh what the story on that song is very interesting he he he, uh recorded it um and the engineer on it was billy sherrill this is the great country music producer that would go on to you know record tammy wynette and george jones and charlie rich and johnny paycheck and he was um, the engineer on Freddie North's original R&B version, and he knew he wanted to produce it on Johnny Paycheck, but he wanted to give Freddie North a little time to get his record out and give it a chance before Johnny Paycheck's version eclipsed it, you know. And so he he very intentionally held back Johnny Paycheck's record for a while so that Freddie North would have a chance to, you know, to 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 get some airplay and have some legs of its own before before the paycheck version came out so yeah yeah and uh you know some other you know kind of side stories that people always like to hear one of them is certainly Jimi hendrix kind of getting his start around here too can you maybe just touch on that a little bit sure yeah of course Jimi hendrix was originally from seattle but he moved to nashville or, or middle tennessee um, in 1961, it was actually because he was um, a part of the, um, you know, he was at Fort Campbell. He was stationed at Fort Campbell on the Tennessee-Kentucky border, and that's where he met Billy Cox, you know, his his bass player. And um, they uh, would play around the Clarksville area, but then they would make trips to Nashville and play around the city here. And then after they got out of the Army, um, Jimmy and Billy both moved uh to Nashville, Jimmy lived um, on Jefferson Street, and um, and I guess a lot of historians would say that like this is where he became like a workaday guitarist, where he really learned the trade. Um, he was in a house band at the Del Morocco um, in, in a band called the King Casuals. He used to play a Printer's Alley. Um, he looked up to a, a local guitar player here named Johnny Jones. You know, Na- Johnny was like Nashville's premier blues guitarist and you know apparently you know jimmy would kind of like follow him around and watch him play and, and, and learn from him and there's a there's a famous story where uh, they them two uh, got into like a, a famous guitar duo duel you know and uh and that uh you know jimmy uh leapt with his uh tail between his legs because johnny he just you know <laughs> johnny just outpowered him you know so yeah, and uh, just a, a, a couple more, you know, stories ar- around Nashville R&B. But another side of Nashville R&B, and you mentioned Hoss Allen earlier briefly, is not just the recording of R&B here, but also uh, the radio station WLAC that people could pretty much hear all over the country. And in in that matter, influenced a lot of musicians and people. Can you touch on that legacy a little bit yeah you know you can't overstate the importance of wlac i kind of say wlac was to r&b what wsm is to country music you know wsm the station of the grand old opry turned you know people all over the nation on to 
to country music and and that's what WLAC did for R&B and it was you know this is at a time you know they started playing black music at night in 1946 um was a DJ named Gene Noble who uh the story is is that some black students um came to WLAC and said will you play some of our kind of music and I think it was like boogie woogie records and, and that kind of thing and Gene started playing some of them on the air and they just got a great response people started writing into the station saying you know we want to hear more of that and so you had these uh basically you had these white older djs like john r john richburg and gene nobles and uh hoss allen and herman grizzard uh they were white but uh most listeners thought they were black and a lot of it was because they would kind of talk in in, in a jive talk and um and there's there's a lot of funny stories of uh listeners meeting the djs for the first time and surprised you know that they were white but you know again they were playing this music um when it was sort of taboo to do so um you know there were other they weren't the only station playing r&b music in the 40s but they were the only station that had that much power they were a 50,000 watt clear channel station you know they could be heard in canada they could be heard in jamaica um if if you know if you go and read the autobiographies or biographies of James Brown and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and BB King and others i mean they'll they'll tell you that how um important WLAC was to their careers that in a lot of cases it was WLAC was the the first powerful station to play their records yeah and we're here at Creative Workshop recording studio that's owned by Buzz Kaysen had he's the original owner he opened it in 1970 and you mentioned him earlier him and Matt Gaydon and the song Everlasting Love maybe if you wouldn't mind just uh tell us a little bit about Buzz's role in Nashville R&B or Buzz Max and some other people like Charlie McCoy who were like you know these white kids if you will just being in love with that kind of music but then becoming very important players yeah absolutely you know buzz and mac and for that matter charlie mccoy yeah they were just ate up with r&b you know charlie mccoy is the great harmonica player and and you know and he was mainly listening to to blues harp you know and then with mac and buzz you know yeah they were just uh local nashville kids just ate up with r&b they were going to r&b shows you know um you know buzz casen's told me stories about like going to see like an R&B review show like at the Ryman in the 1950s when it was a segregated audience and you know working his way backstage and getting to meet you know the, the performers and um you know and then you know in Buzz's case you know he ended up uh writing you know the song Soldier of Love which I first you know heard by Arthur Alexander um, again Arthur Alexander was so important to, he was sort of my introduction to the Nashville R&B and and you know then that song ended up you know the, the Beatles ended up recording that song and 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 Marshall Crenshaw and others and you know Mac Gaden has an interesting story he uh as a teenager worked at Ernie's Record Mart which was the main spot one of the main sponsors on WLAC it was uh you know a, a, a record store on Third Avenue uh, owned by Ernie Young and again he would uh you know he would sell the records but mainly by mail order you know over WLAC um and then he started uh, the same guy that had the record shop Ernie um also started uh Excello Records which becomes one of the most 
you know, important R&B and blues labels um, in, in the history of its of that music. And, and so, you know, um, Mac and Buzz were, were entrenched, you know, in this from, from a very young age, from their from their teens, you know. You mentioned uh, Soldier of Love, too. And one thing you, you might know already, but if not, you will like it. Um, Donnie Fritz is working on an Arthur Alexander tribute album, and that's one of the songs he he uh, cut for it, too. Wonderful. Among other th- songs, and especially also songs that Donnie wrote with Arthur because the two of them were really tied. Um, yeah. But anyway, and we could keep talking about you know this side of Nashville forever I think but I would just like to to maybe finish it off with one thing you mentioned that you guys did two compilation albums connected to the exhibit and the first one actually won a Grammy and would you mind maybe sharing a little bit how the curation or creation of that project came about yeah um, yeah as I was saying earlier one wonderful thing about the museum at the country music hall of fame is not only do we have the exhibit space but we 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 know that we can't tell the whole story just in the exhibit gallery and thankfully you know we we can flesh out those stories with with cds and books and magazine articles and podcasts and public programs and um and so you know we decided early on that we were going to put out a, a CD set with the Night Train exhibit. So it was a two CD set. And on that one, we made sure that we covered, you know, all all the uh, milestone songs. So on that CD, you're going to get Sunny and You Can Make It If You Try and Everlasting Love. And, and all, the, all those are on there. And, um, and you know, it got... We, we put that out with uh, the, the record label Lost Highway, which is part of the Universal Music Group. So they're the ones that actually manufactured the CD and distributed it. You know, our the Hall of Fame staff, uh, Daniel Cooper and me, like chose the songs and wrote the liner notes and, you know, did all the programming. But then we turned it over to Lost Highway and they manufactured it and got it into stores. And um, one big boost it got was that um, the, the TV show CBS Sunday Morning um, did a summer special where they listed their five favorite albums of the year so far. The idea was like, okay, people are about to go on their summer road trips. Here's five CDs to take with you on the road. And their number one pick was the Night Train to Nashville compilation. And they did like a five-minute story about it on primetime TV. And the next thing we know, you know... Um, it was like the number one seller like on amazon.com for for a little while like i mean it was like outpacing big records by the beastie boys and rem just for a few days right after that cbs morning news piece ran um and and then when it got the grammy nomination you know we were up against johnny cash shortly after he had passed away and um some other big big records were nominated in the same category so i just went out to los angeles to the grammy Grammys really truly this is not like false humility I really just thought okay well Johnny Cash or somebody else will win but I'm gonna go out and have fun and 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 wasn't feeling any pressure you know and then sure enough they they called our name and uh and and just uh, you know this was during the pre uh televised award show and then I just remember you know when, when while accepting the Grammy, thanking all the Nashville R and B you know artists for, and hoping that this they're finally that some of them were finally getting their due, you know. Yeah, uh, and I remember so. you actually got me the certificate for Harrison Calloway because you couldn't track him down or you were not able to give it to him, and I gave it to him, and that 
you know, that made his day. I mean, week, month, probably. And I was so glad to see that, you know, that they got to get a piece of the action, too. I think that that certainly meant a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, just to, I mean, and, and just one other thing I'd like to say about the, the Night Train project is, um, you know, it, it opened in 2004, and we, the museum, the Country Music Hall of Fame, had just moved from Music Row to downtown, and we were millions of dollars, you know, in, 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 in debt because of the, the, the construction of the new building, and there was a lot of pressure put on our senior staff, and, you know, I, I got to thank them and give them credit for, for rolling with this exhibit. I mean, it was, it was it was risky for the Country Music Hall of Fame to devote half of its second floor to telling the R&B story in Nashville. And and I remember the staff sort of asking the tough question, like, you know, most of the, or all of the historians and curators working on the on the exhibit were white. And I, and I remember, like, asking ourselves, should we be the ones telling this story? Should this white staff be telling the African-American story? But I guess my feeling at the time was that nobody else was i mean now, since then a lot of things have developed you know there's the national museum of african-american music is coming on board and and there, there's lots of other um things happening to to tell the story and to preserve this music but at the time there really wasn't much i remember we had just lost the great singer roscoe shelton and i'm thinking okay these these singers and songwriters are, are starting to pass away and nobody and this history is you know getting lost and that if, if nobody else is, maybe we should, you know. And so I'll just applaud our, our uh, you know, my bosses who um, who let us, who, who, who had the, um, the confidence to, to let us do this exhibit. Yeah. yeah, and another exhibit you were involved in that goes a little bit down a similar road is the Ray Charles exhibit where you guys highlighted his country and western recordings. Can you just touch a little bit on that exhibit yeah you know it was a natural follow-up to night train to nashville ray had just passed away uh the movie ray with you know jamie fox uh had, had, had just come out and um you know uh the folks that run his estate in los angeles um basically approached us and said would you be interested in doing doing an exhibit and of course to us it was a no-brainer i mean ray charles was so important i mean you know he was so influenced by country music and then had such an impact on country music you know particularly with his 1962 album you know modern sounds and country and western music which had the big hit i can't stop loving you and so um you know anytime we do a figure that's as big as ray charles it's kind of like well what can we bring to the table like like his life had been so well chronicled his story was so well known but we felt like well being the country music hall of fame we really really took that country music angle on ray and and talked you know half the exhibit was about how he grew up listening to country music and listening to the opry and his one of his very first bands you know in florida was uh you know a, a country band and you know how he started you know making country records even you know even for atlantic records he he did the song i'm moving on the hank snow song um even before the the modern sounds and country and western record came along so we we talked about how he was influenced by country and then we talked about how how he like brought a whole new audience to country music in the in the 60s and um and so that that was a that was a a, f a fun exhibit to work on yeah 
Yeah, and then later you did a, an exhibit that was talking about the history of country music from Bakersfield, the Central Valley area of California. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. We opened um, an exhibit in 2012. It was called the Bakersfield Sound um, Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, and California Country. And, you know, we had, you know, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard are both members of the Country Music Hall of Fame. And, in, at, you know, our staff at different times had suggested, oh, maybe we should do an exhibit on Buck Owens. And later, oh, maybe we should do an exhibit, or yeah, we should do an exhibit on Merle Haggard. But then we thought, you know what, it would actually be more interesting to, to do a full exhibit on Bakersfield and that music scene that they both came out of, you know. Um, and, just to kind of look at the context that they're that they did you know that their creative talent you know wasn't in a vacuum that there was like this whole music scene happening there in Bakersfield you know in the in the, in the 50s and 60s and you know how did that one town you know end up becoming you know so rich with music you know and um and you know not only with Buck and Merle but with you know folks like Red Simpson and and Bonnie Owens and you know uh, you know Win Stewart played a lot there and Tommy Collins and so there was this whole like community of great musicians who came out of there and we just kind of wanted to look at like like how did how did all that take place and so um, one highlight of that exhibit I will say is that um, uh, it opened in 2012 just about the time that Merle Haggard was turning 75. And one of the highlights of my career was that I got to interview Merle Haggard um, in the Ford Theater there at the Hall of Fame, um, right, like the weekend of his 75th birthday. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that was great. And uh, you also got to work uh, on an exhibit about uh, one of the fathers of rock and roll, or the father of rock and roll, how he how he's you know known, um, Sam Phillips. And uh, can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, that's one of the exhibits I'm very proud of. First of all, I got to work on that exhibit with the great Peter Gorolnik, who is like a hero of mine. You know, Peter Gorolnik is probably, you know, the greatest um, writer, author on, on, on American music. And, um, you know, I've been reading him since high school and had gotten to know him over the years. And, of course, he's in, you know, he's got a, a full length biography on Sam Phillips and he's probably the leading expert on Elvis and um and so to get to work on the Sam Phillips exhibit with Peter you know that alone was wonderful but then you know again one thing I I'm glad about the Hall of Fame is that we didn't just tell the country rockabilly part of the story I mean you know of course Sam Phelps is most famous for discovering Elvis and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl and um, um, Charlie Rich sorry <laughs> um, but you know before that before he was re recording the the white artist you know he he, he opened uh, the Memphis recording services his studio in Memphis he uh, opened it to record blues artists and you know he was the one that you know, first, you know, recorded, uh, you know, B.B. King and Howlin' Wolf and Ike Turner, yeah, all those artists, um, Roscoe Gordon. And so we, you know, they, we, we, you know, they were, those artists, those blues artists were as featured, you know, nearly as prominently as the white rockabilly artists in that exhibit. So. 
Yeah, and, mm. and Peter had a book and a documentary about it too that you screened one day a few years before, I think, at Ford Theater too, and that's how I got to see it. I don't know if it's ever been released, but you did a screening there at the museum, and that was fascinating too. And uh, obviously there's a Muscle Shoals connect connection there too with him with him growing up in, in Florence Alabama so uh, that's kind of that's one thing and you know like going down the rabbit hole or whatever and listening to records looking at record covers discovering all the connections and the intersections that's something that's always fascinated me and I bet that's a big part of what you do every day it's kind of you know uncover those connections and and kind of highlight some of that and uh, absolutely i mean i love that i get to learn so much in my job i mean the last thing i try to ever do is like approach it as a know-it-all i go into it like man i'm gonna learn so much more about this person or this artist or this music scene you know i don't you know i i have so much so much more to learn and and thankfully i have one of these jobs where um you know, my livelihood and my passion and my hobby kind of intersect and, and I just get to go to work every day and learn, learn more about this music. And, you know, yeah. yeah. Question here too. I mean, you know, yeah, I always feel you're learning every day and you certainly never learn out, you know, it's, there's always more to learn. And, uh, to roll, you mentioned a few people that, although you might have not mentioned the word mentors, but, might have been mentors to you. In my case, you know, people like Buzzy or Mickey Buckins or David Hood. or I just feel I can learn so much from them by just being around them and uh, being inspired and them, you know, teaching you stuff. Uh, who are some of your mentors or people that have shaped the way you operate? Yeah, well, Jay Orr. Um, Jay Orr is my boss at the Country Music Hall of Fame, and this is our third job together. He hired me out of college to be a music writer at the Nashville Banner uh, newspaper, and then that was, you know, Nashville's afternoon paper, and it got bought out by the Tennessee or Gannett uh, in 98. And um, then we both went out or to CMT for a little while, and then um, we both ended up at the Hall of Fame um, in in 2002 so uh that that was our uh, third job the going to the hall of fame was our third job together and boy he's been a mentor i mean he's he's a great editor but i've learned it's it's more than just um syntax and and grammar that i've learned from jay he you know when, when i first started working with him i was in my early 20s and didn't know that many people um in the music business and he just introduced me to folks and just kind of sh just showed me the ropes um, about everything. I mean, I, I owe him so much. And um, and he is like just one of the most even-tempered guys I've ever met in my entire life um, and just couldn't ask for a better boss. So he's he's been super important in, in my life. Um, I think I mentioned um, Charles Wolf. He was one of my professors at MTSU. Um, he's one of the reasons... Um, that I came to Nashville is, you know, he, he, he was a you know famous folklorist and, and had written books on people like Lead Belly. And I knew he was teaching at MTSU and I wanted to come study under him. Um, Mike Smith at Phonolux Records just turned me on to so many good records. That guy's just got great ears and, and his record collection just goes so deep that, um, 
he's just he's literally never turned me on to a bad record you know and so i mean there there are a lot of others but um but but those three come immediately to mind and earlier you also mentioned peter Guralnik as you know writer music historian scholar can you tell me a little bit how you got to meet him and some you know a little more about your collaboration yeah, well, I've been reading Peter Gorelnik's books since high school. Um, his book, Sweet Soul Music, in particular, had a huge um, influence on me. Um, that book came out, I think, when I was like in 11th grade in high school. And, you know, here he was writing about all this great Southern soul music. And I knew, it, you know, at that time, I knew a lot of the, the big names in soul music, but didn't know, like, a lot of the behind-the-scenes folks. Um, for instance, I knew... You know, songs like Dark End of the Street and I'm Your Puppet and Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. But in 11th grade, I didn't make the connection that all three of those songs, you know, were written or co-written by Dan Penn. And But reading Peter's book, you know, just educated me to those kinds of things. And so I've been a fan of his work for years and have relied on his research for years. And first met him... Um, I think in the early 90s, but then really got to know him like the last 12 years because Peter, though he lives in Massachusetts, uh, he was hired by Vanderbilt University as a uh, like a writer in residence. And he was coming here every spring to teach classes at Vanderbilt. And, you know, <laughs> at the Hall of Fame, we're no fools. We knew that if Peter Gorelnik was in town and living here, that we should... Um, you know, partner with him on things. And so literally every year we would have him do some kind of um, presentation at the museum. So he's, you know, in our in our Ford Theater there at the museum, he's come and done talks on Elvis Presley and Colonel Tom Parker and Ray Charles and Solomon Burke and Sam Phillips and Ray Charles and, you know, and, and others. And um, he was, while he was, um, you know, uh, doing his stint at Vanderbilt, he was also working on a major um, biography of uh, Sam Phillips. And so we timed it so that the, when his uh, Sam Phillips book was about to be published, uh, we would open up a, a major exhibit on Sam Phillips at the Country Music Hall of Fame. And Peter was a, a guest co-curator of that exhibit with us. And so, man, what a what a treat to get to work with him um, on on any exhibit, but especially one on Sam Phillips. I mean, man, that guy is behind so much of the greatest music, you know, not only, not only the rockabilly artists like, like Elvis Presley and Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash, but, and Charlie Rich, but also, you know, Sam first opened his studio in Memphis to record blues. You know, he was recording Ike Turner and BB King and little Milton and, you know, all these, great artist Roscoe Gordon and and so you know the exhibit really focused as, mu as much on the R&B and blues stuff as as the country um, and 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 on a personal note also I'll add that the way I even got into country music was through rockabilly uh, my my mom um, and well both my parents liked Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and you know that was kind of my gateway into country music to begin with so it was a real treat to get to work on an exhibit on Sam Phillips yeah, and just to to cap off your the exhibits you've been responsible for always with a great great team. I know that. Um, 
But the current exhibit, which is just outstanding in so many ways, uh, is called Dylan Cash and the Nashville Cats. Would you mind talking about that some? Yeah, so I had, um, or I should say our staff, different people on staff had been pitching the idea of doing something on Dylan for a long time. You know, Dylan made three and a half records in Nashville in the in the late uh, 60s, you know, starting with Blonde on Blonde and was working with a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the Nashville musicians like Charlie McCoy and Wayne Moss and Kenny Buttrey and, and, and Matt Gaiden and folks like that. And we'd been pitching the idea of doing something, didn't know exactly how it would shake out. And I remember pitching the Dylan exhibit right after we did Night Train to Nashville and Ray Charles, thinking, oh, maybe Dylan could come after Ray Charles, you know, so this would have been, oh, you know, like around 2008 or so, you know, um, and my, one of my bosses, Carolyn Tate, she was so wise, she said, you know, I kind of like the idea of doing something on Dylan, but she didn't like the trajectory of it following Night Train and Ray Charles. She said, you know, we need to do something squarely down the middle, hard country. Um, we don't want to like make it look like country music is only important or, or good because Ray Charles and Bob Dylan like it, you know. And so um, following the Ray Charles exhibit, we did one on uh, Hank Williams. And then we did the Bakersfield one with, you know, Buck and Merle. That's as country as you can get. Then it was like, okay, now it's time to maybe to do the Dylan exhibit. You know? And so uh, we opened that exhibit in 2005. Um, it's been up for three years. It's going to close in uh, February 2018. Um, and again, like I said about Ray Charles, Ray Charles is such a big figure. It was like, well, what can the Country Music Hall of Fame bring to the table that hasn't already been said? You know, and with in Dylan's case, you know, he's one of the most analyzed, chronicled musician in all of popular music but we thought well let's look at dylan's recordings through the lens of the nashville cats and so we, we tell the story of how dylan ended up in nashville in the first place and how that was surprising to people um, in 1966 for this new york hipster you know to be in nashville because nashville at that time would have been you know considered a um you know conservative backwater just country town um so what's a new york hipster like dylan doing there but you know he starts making a masterpiece like blonde on blonde and people and, and john wesley harding and national skyline and people are hearing this and going wow i mean if if dylan's going there and making these great records maybe we should think about going there too and so all these other rock and folk artists started pouring in you know from from the birds and Leonard Cohen and Joan Baez and Linda Ronstadt and, you know, Neil Young. And I mean, it just goes on and on. And they were all coming to Nashville to work with the same small group of, of musicians and like 20, 25 musicians, the same ones are on all these records. And, um, and, and, you know, and we also look at, uh, Johnny Cash as a part of the story because he had this, you know, network TV show, the, the, premiere episode had Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell on it and you know he had Pete Seeger and Neil Young and 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 lots of other uh, rock and, uh, and and folk artists on there and he was sort of helping bridge a lot of those cultural and generational gaps between like the old guard Nashville and basically the hippies who were coming in to, to start making music here. On the current exhibit uh, you uh, partnered with Pete Finney 
to curate the, the exhibit. Can you elaborate a little bit on you guys' relationship? Yes, uh, Pete Finney, you know, is a great steel guitarist in town. And when I moved to Nashville in 1987, he was one of the first people to to show me the ropes around town. He um, took me to the. He was the first person to ever take me to the Grand Old Opry, and he knew I was real into jazz music. And he was like turning me on to like um, a lot of Western swing music, saying, "Well, if you like jazz, then you know, listen to these Bob Wills records because it's basically." you know, a lot of the same, <laughs> you know, kind of music. And um, Pete um, started coming into the Hall of Fame's library and was starting to do, to do research on a book about uh, Dylan when Dylan came to Nashville. And um, our staff had been k sort of kicking around some ideas about doing something on the the, the albums that Dylan made in Nashville, Blonde on Blonde and John Wesley Harding and Nashville Skyline. And so, you know, Pete was coming in and doing all that tedious research, going through all the, uh, you know, discographies and, and, and magazines and really putting the hours and, and the sweat in, into the research. And it was like, we just went to Pete and said, you know, We've been thinking about doing something on Dylan. You've been doing research on Dylan. You know, why don't we, you know, team up and, and, and partner. And so we basically hired Pete Finney as a guest curator um, to work with us on the Dylan Cash Cats exhibit. And so he was he was very, very, um, you know, uh, important to that whole process and um, and gave us some perspectives on the story that I don't think um, we would have arrived at on our own. So, so yeah, so that was great having Pete involved with that exhibit. Yeah, and one thing I, I like too about that exhibit is you, you got Dylan and Cash as like the more key names, but in many ways it shines a spotlight on the Nashville Cats, which are, you know, these behind the scenes figures that have been so important to this town. And they played on a lot of country records too, uh, but besides that. And uh, kind of from there, uh, I would like to touch a little bit on a couple of series you guys are producing at the Country Music Hall of Fame. One of them is called Nashville Cats, where you guys uh, honor those players and interview them in front of the public. And it's always really nicely done. And Bill Lloyd does a lot of that. And you are in charge of one called Poets and Prophets, where you guys... Uh, honor the songwriters. Can you tell us a little bit about Poets and Prophets? Yeah, so the Nashville Cats series started in 2006 with Bill Lloyd interviewing the great pedal steel guitarist Lloyd Green. And basically with that, you know, he would sit down, you know, a significant behind the scenes musician and talk to them for like an hour and a half. And, you know, we would always incorporate like, you know, vintage video clips and have them demonstrate their instruments some and perform and and um, just kind of really go dig dig deep into their career and so the Nashville Cats series went so well that uh, my boss Jay Orr you know w within a few months said oh well we need to do the same kind of series but do it with songwriters um, instead of instead of studio musicians so the Nashville Cats series focuses on studio musicians and then the songwriting 
series is called Poets and Prophets, Salute to Legendary Songwriters. And uh, we launched that in 2007, and I've had the privilege of, of doing all those interviews. Um, we're about, we've been doing it for 10 years and about to do the 40th interview in that series. Um, later this year, it, it, it kicked off with um, the great songwriter um, Hank Cochran, and then we went and did John D. Loudermilk and Bobby Braddock and Bob McDill and Whitey Schaefer and you know uh, through the years we've done we've done Buzz Kaysen we've done Jimmy Webb Dan Penn um, you know it's just it's been just a joy to work on those programs and and I kind of look at it like it serves two purposes on one hand it gives the Hall of Fame a chance to shine a, a spotlight and honor the achievements of these great songwriters. But as a museum, it also gives us a chance to collect a great interview because, you know, we film, we have these interviews or, uh, you know, they're done in front of a live audience, but they're professionally filmed. And then those films will, you know, live in our archive forever. So, you know, 100 years from now, if uh, somebody wants to to write a book on Nashville songwriting, you know, they're going to have 40 interviews, 40 long, lengthy (laughs) interviews to to, to look at or if or if someone wants to do a book on Dan Penn well we've got you know an interview with him in, in the can that people can 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 come and watch so, yeah that yeah. is great and that's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast too for the very same reason to be able to capture all these great stories and all these you know kind of about all these great people in music and especially the ones that otherwise might be not as much covered it's not as, as you said before, you know, Bob Dylan has been chronicled a lot. You, you, you can go out there and find pretty much anything. But some of those people that act more behind the scenes, it's certainly harder to obtain that information. And uh, one thing I like to, uh, kind of almost a trend here more recently, I guess. We mentioned Ted Cherit's book, but Buzz Kaysen did a book, Matt Gaten did a book, Charlie McCoy, Wayne Moss different different other people and I uh, I'm really glad that there are a lot of people and sometimes those artists and musicians themselves who actually took the initiative to contribute to the material that's available and uh, just we're almost at the end here but uh, is there anything we kind of haven't touched on that you would like to share no I mean I I thank you for, for for taking the time to do this and and let me tell a little bit of my story and um i just uh love 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 nashville and uh, i mean i moved here you know 30 years ago and just have never thought about leaving this town never ceases to amaze me like every night of the week you can go out and hear good music and um and i just want to keep myself open to to hearing hearing things I haven't heard before and meeting new people and um and and I'm I'm glad to have a job that lets me do that and I'm glad to have friends like you to that they're always constantly turning me on to to, to great music as well yeah well thank you too because vice versa you know I've learned so much on those poets and prophets interviews you did with all these great people and uh it's always I can't you know I would like to encourage anybody to to go and check those out or go to you guys' archive. Is there any other, can you talk just a little bit about 
what's going on at the Hall of Fame now and maybe the next year or so, just to kind of, if anybody else would be interested to come here and check it out. Yeah, I mean, well, we're constant at the museum. We're constantly, you know, changing exhibits, keeping things fresh, um, doing hundreds of public programs a year. Not only the Poets and Prophets and the Nashville Cats, but literally every single Saturday we have a songwriter perform. Every Sunday we have a, you know, a professional musician do a instrument demonstration. Um, and there's just so much going on there. We're always trying to keep it fresh and giving people a reason to, you know, to keep coming back. And um, so, yeah, just, uh, you know, just, you can always go to our website and at the, you know, country music hall of fame.org and, and get a handle on what's, what's happening there. Yeah, that's great. And I can encourage anybody to go and check it out. And it's just getting better and better too. You just had, I don't know, almost doubled your exhibit space within the last few years. And yep. And we're, and we're breaking attendance records. The last uh, two or three years, we've had over a million people come through the museum each year. So, which is, yeah. uh, and the yeah, new yeah. CMA Theater is spectacular too, and that's mm-hmm. this is the fiftieth anniversary of the Country Music Hall of yeah. Fame too. So, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, thank you so much for your time, and I just wish you the best of luck with everything in life. Thank you, Andreas. This was the twelfth episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Buzz Kaysen's legendary creative workshop recording studio in the Berry Hill neighborhood of Nashville. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. (laughs) 